All right, so in mid-October, we started a new fall membership series where we've been framing some of the core tenets of our church and where we situate ourselves on the faith landscape. And so this morning, we're actually going to take a broad look at one of the major conversations that's been taking place in Western Christianity, discussions that are ongoing and widespread enough that some are calling this a second reformation, some are calling it a great emergence. I think only time will tell what name actually sticks. But the crux of this conversation has to do with where the authority of the church should lie. So in other words, when the church stumbles into issues that are difficult to decide, and every generation seems to have its own disputable issues, who or what gets to make the decisions for how the church should respond to those? Right, so to get to the heart of why at Blue Ocean we tend to say solus Jesus, we're going to take a very quick walk through some of church history, very broad, just for the framing. And I want to warn you, this isn't an extra long sermon, but it is a little bit thick. It's a little thicker than some of ours. So I just want to say, hang in there with me. I love history. If you don't, that's all right. So from the time that Christianity was embraced by the Roman Empire, this happened in the year around 300 of the Common Era, up until the time of what we call the Protestant Reformation now, which took place over the course of you know, 150, 200 years, it was around 1400 to 1500, the authority of the church was largely said to lie with the Pope and with the magisterium, which is like the teaching authority of the church. And so there was really only one major organized church during that time, right? We're thinking like Middle Ages and just before that. And then in about 1054, the church split into East and into West. So it became the Roman Catholic Church in the West. It became the Eastern Orthodox Church in the East. Both of those retained this sort of authoritative leader model. They had different leaders, right? We know in the Roman Catholic Church, we have a Pope. And in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they have a patriarch. There's actually like other patriarchs, depending on which segment you're in, the Oriental Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, Serbian, etc. But when questions of faith or practice arose, the final decisions there were with like the leadership and the teachings of those two major segments of the church. And this is still true for those denominations today. Then near around the end of the 1300s, some people started to question the wisdom of having such authority depend on humans. And so we saw reformers started to emerge around that time. One of my favorite people in church history is a guy named Jan Hus. He was a, a guy from what is today the Czech Republic. Um, but he ended up being burned at the stake, uh, which was a gruesome way to go, as were many other people who were in the reforming uh, movement at that time. And he was burned for, for a couple of things. First, he was um, called a heretic for opposing the fraudulent church practice of selling indulgences. In other words, like making people pay money to be forgiven. Um, for heavily criticizing centuries upon centuries of violent crusades, which by and large had wrapped up by his time, but he was standing up and saying, this is how it's been used, it's not been good. And for appealing to Jesus as the head of the church and not the Pope. Well, actually, popes, which I'll get to. Around 100 years later or so, we had a guy named Martin Luther. Some of you have probably heard about the Lutheran Church, would carry on his name, um, maybe one that's more familiar to those of you here in Michigan would be like John Calvin, who was roughly contemporary with him. You know, on the western side of the state, we've got Calvin College. Hope College comes from that tradition. 
So John Calvin was actually a French guy who spent most of his uh, ministry life in Geneva, Switzerland. But many people in the Netherlands were following his teachings, and a lot of those people who are Dutch came over and moved into western side of Michigan, and so that informs um, a lot of the culture in our state, and so we're fairly familiar with that. You had guys like Ulrich Zwingli, who was over in Switzerland. And so what you see is that we had all of these different people at different times and in different places who were all starting to talk about similar things. And it was looking at the corruption that they saw rampant in the Roman Catholic Church at that time. And so they started preaching that the Pope wasn't the ultimate authority of the church. But people had already started to wonder a little bit about that anyway, because not long before that, in Jan Hus's time, um, there had actually been three men who were all claiming to be Pope at the same time, and it took a council to settle that dispute. All three actually had a legitimate claim to that title. Um, it was actually a little bit more complicated than that because this took place over about the course of 40 years, and all three of those Popes who were located in three different places, Avignon, Rome, and I think Pisa, actually all of them died in office and they had successors who came up, and so we had like two generations of three popes that were going on there. So eventually, another council of bishops met and convinced two of those popes to step down, but the third one refused. And you would think, okay, good, problem solved, right? One pope left. But the council didn't like him, and he lived in France, and they wanted him in Rome. They didn't like, like that the monarchy of France was really tied in with him, so they elected yet another pope. So now we still had two men claiming to be the Pope, one in France and one in Rome. And so people were wondering, okay, where does the authority lie? If it's with the Pope, which Pope? Is it actually with the Council of Bishops who seem to be making all of these decisions? Is it actually the church that's being run by various monarchies and people with money? And there was all of this infighting that was happening in between the political powers in Europe. And that's the atmosphere, that hot mess, in which those reformers emerged. And they started preaching that Jesus is the head of the church, and the way to find about Jesus is through scripture. And they said, you know, the pope and the bishops are fallible humans, as are we all, right? Meaning that they, they can make mistakes. But scripture was thought to be infallible. It was thought to be faultless. Therefore, scripture, they said, holds the ultimate authority in the church. And so the slogan for these reformers was, and still is in many parts of the church, sola scriptura, scripture alone. And there are a few other alones in there, depending on your tradition. Faith alone, grace alone, glory to God alone, through Christ alone. But sola scriptura, the scripture alone, was like the banner cry of the reformers. Even among some of the Protestant movements who were rejecting that per se, were saying, you know, we're not sure it's just scripture. The primary authority still tended to default to the Bible. So, for example, the Anglicans didn't wholly embrace the sola scriptura idea. So like our Episcopalian friends with whom we share a building and who we love very much, they come out of that Anglican tradition, as do the United Methodists. So the United Methodists developed what they called a three-legged stool. Some of you have probably heard of this if you have a Methodist background. And they said, what we're going to do is we're going to look at scripture and reason and tradition. Reason just being theology, logic, common sense, tradition being the traditional teaching and practices of the church, and they use all those together to help discern what is of God. And then somebody else came within the Anglican tradition, John Wesley, and he essentially added a fourth leg to that, only it would be way too easy to just call it a four-legged stool, wouldn't it? They called it the Wesleyan quadrilateral. <laughs> I know, it's a little bit of a mouthful. Scripture, reason, tradition, and he added experience. 
And even within these more balanced approaches, they tend to default to scripture kind of being the bottom line when things seem unclear. And it sounds simple, right? Like that, that makes a lot of sense to me within the context. If the reformers were right, and if the Bible was clear, and if it was easily understood, and if it contained no errors, then anyone who was taught to read it, you would think could come to relatively similar conclusions about what it said. And so they did what I think was the logical thing to do, is they started teaching people how to read which had the great effect, the positive effect of starting a widespread literacy movement, especially in Europe. So that, like you'd go to Sunday school and you'd learn how to read. And that was great. So many reasons, right? It pulls people out of poverty. They can connect to God through the scriptures on their own. And yet, in regards to scripture reading being like the easy fix solution for where the authority of the church was located, well, 500 years later, we can see the results. And it turns out maybe the Bible isn't so clear or easily understood because the results of the Sola Scriptura over the last 500 years have produced more than 30,000 church denominations as church after church parted ways over various theological differences. It was calculated by a guy named Dr. Christian Smith, who's now at Notre Dame. So massive disunity is one result of Sola Scriptura. And that took a little bit of time to play out, and now that it has, it's kind of being reevaluated. So the larger question that's being asked here is whether we've been reading the Bible in a way that maybe it's not actually meant to be read, and that maybe we've asked it to function in a way that it's not meant to function. Right, so there's a, a Methodist scholar who um, Ken and I drew a lot of inspiration from. His name is William Abraham. He's an Irish guy, and I, I think he actually died just last year, so it's very recent. And I think he offers us some help. And what he does is he takes the Bible and he places it down among several other spiritual tools in our tradition as just one of many. In other words, he kind of takes it off the pedestal and de-escalates it a little bit. And he says, you know, it's really one of many tools that include other things like community and reason and experience. But also he would include in there things that we call the sacraments. So that would be things like taking communion or baptism and he also includes in there what he calls the various practices. And so that would include things like prayer and contemplation and silence and worship and singing together. Liturgy, which is what we call like the order of how we do things on Sunday morning, sort of our ritual. He includes things in the liturgical calendar in there, celebrating Lent and Advent. And like we just celebrated All Saints last weekend. And what he says is that all of these things and more can be included in a long list of materials that help people connect to God. He says these values and practices have carried on in the church because the church has experienced their helpfulness for people. Right? They help us thrive. They help us have a relationship with the creator and they help us to develop a rhythm of worship in our lives. And so for this reason, Dr. Abraham suggested that maybe we should regard all of these things as means of grace. That's a, that's a term that we use a lot here. Means of grace or medicine for the soul rather than as tools of wielding authority. And what he said was that it was only in response to these various like, political pressures or inside pressures throughout the ages that the church started regarding things like scripture and reason and tradition as authorities meant to settle arguments. And he says, you know, that, that approach fits really well in the realm of philosophy far more than it fits in the realm of faith. He says, faith is about connection and involvement and participation with the divine 
Philosophy is about the justification of your belief, of the rationality of like settling disputes using accepted criteria and separating truth from falsehood. Now, he doesn't deny the validity or the importance of doing that, right, of trying to answer those philosophical questions. Those can also help us experience God, right, that iron sharpening iron, how now shall we live? That's important. But he argues that no one answer should be considered binding on all. So I'm just going to read you a quote. It's a little bit thick, but I think it's an important one from him. He says, all of these proposals, like papal infallibility, meaning the Pope being uh, not making errors, scriptural infallibility, and the Methodist quadrilateral, should be treated as midrash or commentary. That's kind of how our Jewish friends treat it. It's sort of commentary, secondary to the primary commitments of the church as a whole. And he acknowledges that this approach, he says, invites Protestantism to radical revision and may actually be post-Protestant at its core and might not even be able to be absorbed within Protestantism. So post-Protestant is sometimes how I describe churches like ours for this reason, because I don't really know how to describe us. And these post-Protestant ripples are happening across and within many church denominations, right? It's not just those of us who have kind of come out of those. I've had theologians from all different walks who have contacted us and saying, this is where we're at, including a professor at Calvin who I pushed back on twice. She wanted to review my book, and I was like, oh gosh, if there's anybody who's going to skewer me, it's going to be a professor at Calvin. But she was like, this is where most of our young theologians and pastors are at. They're seeing the problems with it and trying to figure out how to wrestle with it. Now, this is certainly not everyone, right? This is some of the tension that is being experienced in a lot of different church traditions today. And this isn't to discount those who adhere to more like traditional teachings, whether that's Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox. Right? I preached in mid-October about Jesus's teachings, right? And he, he talks about there being new wine and old wine. I think of like the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox churches and many of those Reformed churches, right? They're not going to go anywhere and they shouldn't. They're old wine. It's good and it has depth and it's rich with flavor. And many of us have found some of our best spiritual teachers have come out of those traditions. But there's also this new wine that's bubbling because the old wine hasn't been as useful for some of us. And I was describing how that new wine, there's like a tumultuous stage in the first two to three days of when grapes have first been crushed and they don't really fit into anything because the gas is coming out at such a high rate that they would actually burst anything, new or old. Right? And so I feel like we're kind of in this stage where we're starting to be able to put it into something. We're like stitching together these new wineskins as fast as we can. And all we can do in this space is just try our best to follow the Spirit as best as we can and just trust Jesus to guide us as this new wine is being fermented. We humans crave certainty and we crave ways of determining absolutes. But I think that faith reveals a little bit of a muddier reality. Right? Christianity claims that truth is a person with whom we have relationship. Right? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so if truth is a relational being, then we can grow in truth by better knowing and understanding this incarnation of the Creator. And we can also better know the Creator by incorporating these elements that the saints before us passed down and said, these will help you along that, that road to connection. Now, none of that settles this question of where the authority lies in the church. If it's in Jesus, as I would say, who's alive and whose spirit is active, what does that mean? And how can we tell if the church is really off track? So what I would propose is this. 
This is what Jesus said when he was talking about like false teachers and prophets. He's kind of like, how can you tell us something is, is going wrong? Matthew 7. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. What is this fruit that Jesus talks about? I think the Apostle Paul helps us a little bit in the book of Galatians. Right? He says, the fruit of the Spirit is, I always have to say it fast, because I learned it from the music machine as a kid, and any of you guys love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? They kind of roll off the tongue. And it's not separate things. It's like that is the fruit, that is the one fruit singular of the Spirit, that you can tell that something is of the Spirit because it's producing good things for people, for communities. So if it sounds a little bit messy, it is a little bit because it requires us to discern what is of God and what isn't of God by using the fruit of the Spirit as our gauge rather than by trying to master a text that probably can't actually be mastered. So I want to look at, at one example here because I think we see this approach modeled in some of the writings that we have of how the, the church operated in the first decades after Jesus lived. So one of the earliest disputes in the church is chronicled in the book of Acts. And so we know that the initial followers of Jesus were almost entirely Jewish, because Jesus was a Jewish man. He was a rabbi. Most of his ministry was to his people. And he was one of the leaders in a reform movement that was coming out of his own tradition. Right? So the people who followed this rabbi were also Jewish. It was a Jewish sect that called itself the way. But then some Gentiles started getting intrigued. Gentiles are just non-Jewish people. So there was a city up in what is now Antakya, Turkey, called Antioch. And Antioch at that time was a really cosmopolitan city in the Roman Empire. It was actually the third largest city at that time, and it did things like it hosted the Olympic Games. So it was this like, diverse urban place where both Jewish and non-Jewish believers started coming together, and they were worshiping and following the teachings of this rabbi Jesus. And this started to come as a little bit of a surprise to the mostly Jewish believers who were based back in Jerusalem. They're like, What? Now there's all of these Gentiles coming to faith. Well, we need to see what's going on. So they sent their best guy, Barnabas, who's one of my favorites in the Bible. And they sent him off and they said, go check this out. Go see what's happening. And the text says that when Barnabas arrived in Antioch and he was worshiping with the believers, he saw evidence of the grace of God. And what does that mean, to see evidence of the grace of God? What I imagine is that he walked into this vibrant urban church and he saw Jew and Gentile, and he saw people of different ethnic backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds there worshiping together, being baptized, filled with the Spirit, loving each other, and exuding all of the goodness that Paul had talked about in Galatians, all of those fruit of the Spirit. And he took that as a sign of God's grace on their community. And I think it kind of blew his mind, because there wasn't a widespread understanding in his tradition that Gentiles might be part of this movement. But Barnabas went there and he saw it and he ended up blessing and accelerating what was going on in Antioch. And he got so excited that he actually went and he fetched Paul from Syria. And he's like, you got to come down and see this. And so he got Paul to come down and they worshiped there together for a year. And then they actually took Paul and Silas and they sent them off for a little bit. But the number of Gentiles at that point coming into this Jewish sect started to get a little bit alarming because at a certain point, the Gentiles started to outnumber the Jewish members. 
And so they, they weren't quite so sure um, what to do with that as the balance of power started to change. And so the early church called a meeting that came to be known as the Jerusalem Council to discuss this issue, and that's recorded in Acts 15. And so we see who gathered in Jerusalem, Peter and Paul and Barnabas, they got up in front of this council to make the argument for Gentile inclusion in the faith. And in doing so, they didn't appeal the scripture for the ultimate authority, although they did invoke it. They didn't appeal the tradition for the ultimate authority. I think both in play. But the bottom line came down to what was the fruit? And Peter said, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, right? The fruit of the Spirit at work. Just as he did to us, he didn't discriminate between us and them. He purified their hearts by faith. That's the same way that Peter had also made his own discernment back in Acts 10. He had run into this Roman centurion. I mean, gosh, if you want to talk about anybody that the Jewish people didn't, you know, particularly jive with at that time, would be a Roman centurion, right? Because Rome was occupying Palestine. And it was like, what? You've got to be kidding. But he looked at him. He said, oh, he's got generosity of heart. He's showing faithfulness. He, he and his family show the fruit of the Spirit, and they were baptized. What can we do? So this is why we look at the fruit. So we say solus Jesus because it's a response to this larger conversation that's actually been going on for hundreds of years. That first Reformation cry was sola scriptura. We say solus Jesus because I think the spirit of Jesus manifests in good fruit, and that's what we use as our guide. So if the fruit of a traditional church teaching is widespread depression and despair, it needs to be reevaluated. If the fruit is anti-Semitism, like we are seeing in absolutely alarming amounts right now from American Christians, that needs to be discarded. Sometimes the fruit of a teaching might take time to play out. Right? It's taken 500 years to evaluate that we've got 30,000 plus denominational splits. And so we learn to hold some things a little bit more loosely for a season. And we leave the judging up to Jesus and just say, God is much bigger than we are. And you know what? God can kind of handle that mess as we wait for the fruit to manifest. So the effect of the shift of authority from the Bible to the fruit, the effect of that on churches like ours today is I think we can take a little bit more of an open-handed approach in the way, and use the Bible in the way that I think people prior to the Reformation did and the way that our, our Jewish friends read the Bible. Right? Not that it's like a handbook that leads us to some kind of certainty, but as a witness of God's love and justice. It's like medicine for the soul in a way that we can connect with the divine. Because we like to say here that we need connection more than we need answers. All right, so with that, we usually have a guided meditation or silence. I know babies and kids make noise, people make noise, that's okay. I think I'm just going to invite us to about a minute of silent reflection, if you would like to. Just take a couple of deep breaths, and I'll let us know when that time has passed. Come Holy Spirit and just speak to our hearts.
So Jesus, we thank you for sending your spirit and making that accessible to all. We ask that you would guide us in these, in these times that feel a little bit more uncertain. Like this may not be decided for another 100, 200 years, but here we live through it. And so we lean into you for your guidance. We ask that you would teach us to discern. We ask that you would give us eyes to see what is actually helpful, um, what is helping people thrive, what is helping communities thrive. I ask that you would come and fill your church, that you would bring more unity, that you would help us to be an instrument that brings peace and your justice, the good realm of God into the world, that it's not bad news, but it's good news. Holy Spirit, come, show us our small part that we can play in carrying this torch. Amen.